Section 6 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mastrius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Cicero. Chapters 26 to 37. 26. When Crassus was about to set out for Syria, wishing that Cicero should be a friend rather than an enemy, he said to him, in a friendly manner, that he wished to dine with him, and Cicero readily received him into his house. But a few days afterward, when some friends interceded with him for Vatinius, saying that the man sought reconciliation and friendship, for he was an enemy, it surely cannot be, said Cicero, that Vatinius also wishes to dine with me. Such, then, was his treatment of Crassus. Now, Vatinius himself had swellings on his neck, and once, when he was pleading a case, Cicero called him a tumid orator. Again, after hearing that Vatinius was dead, and then, after a little, learning for a surety that he was alive, wretchedly perished then, said Cicero, the wretch who lied. And, again, Caesar once got a decree passed that the land in Campania should be divided among his soldiers, and many of the senators were dissatisfied, and Lucius Gellius, who was about the oldest of them, declared that it should never be done while he was alive. Whereupon Cicero said, Let us wait, since Gellius does not ask for a long postponement. There was a certain Octavius, too, who was reputed to be of African descent. To this man, who said at a certain trial that he could not hear Cicero, the orator replied, And yet your ear is not without a perforation. And when Metellus Nepus declared that Cicero had brought more men to death as a hostile witness than he had saved from it as an advocate, Yes, said Cicero, I admit that my credibility is greater than my eloquence. Again, when a certain young man who was accused of having given his father poison in a cake put on bold airs and threatened to cover Cicero with abuse, that, said Cicero, I would rather have from you than a cake. There was Publius Sextius, too, who retained Cicero as an advocate in a case, along with others, and then wanted to do all the speaking himself, and would allow no one else a word when it was clear that he was going to be acquitted by the jurors and the vote was already being given. Use your opportunity today, Sextius, said Cicero, for tomorrow you are going to be a nobody. Publius Consta, too, who wanted to be a lawyer, but was ignorant and stupid, was once summoned by Cicero as witness in a case. And when he kept saying that he knew nothing, perhaps, said Cicero, you think you are being questioned on points of law. Again, in a dispute with Cicero, Metellus Nepus asked repeatedly, Who's your father? In your case, said Cicero, your mother has made the answer to this question rather difficult. Now, the mother of Nepos was thought to be unchaste, and he himself a fickle sort of man. He once suddenly deserted his office of tribune and sailed off to join Pompey in Syria, and then came back from there with even less reason. Moreover, after burying his teacher, Philagrus, with more than usual ceremony, he sat upon his tomb a raven in stone, whereupon Cicero remarked, In this you have acted more wisely than is your wont, 
for he taught you to fly rather than to speak. And again, when Marcus Appius prefaced his speech in a case by saying that his friend had begged him to exhibit diligence, eloquence, and fidelity, and then, said Cicero, are you so hard-hearted as to exhibit none of those great qualities which your friend demanded? 27. Now, this use of very biting jests against enemies or legal opponents seems to be part of the orator's business, but his indiscriminate attacks for the sake of raising a laugh made many people hate Cicero. And I will give a few instances of this also. Marcus Aquinius, who had two sons-in-law in exile, he called Adrastus. Again, Lucius Cotta, who held the office of censor, was very fond of wine, and Cicero, when canvassing for the consulship, was athirst, and as his friend stood about him while he drank, said, You have good reason to fear that the censor will deal harshly with me, for drinking water. And when he met Vaconius escorting three very ugly daughters, he cried out, It was against the will of Phoebus that he begat children. Again, when Marcus Gilius, who was thought to be of servile birth, had read letters to the Senate in a loud and clear voice, Do not marvel, said Cicero. He, too, is one of those who have cried aloud for their freedom. And when Faustus, the son of the Sulla, who was dictator at Rome, and placarded many people for death, got into debt, squandered much of his substance, and placarded his household goods for sale, Cicero said he liked this placarding better than his father's. 28. As a consequence of this, he became odious to many, and besides, the partisans of Claudius combined against him on the following ground. Claudius was a man of noble birth, young in years, but bold and presumptuous in spirit. This man, being in love with Pompeia, Caesar's wife, got into his house secretly, by assuming the dress and guise of a lute-player, for the women of Rome were celebrating in Caesar's house that mysterious rite which men were not allowed to witness, and no man was there. But being still a beardless youth, Claudius hoped, without being noticed, to slip through to Pompeia along with the women. But since he got in at night and the house was large, he lost his way in the passages, and as he was wandering about, a maid of Aurelia, Caesar's mother, caught sight of him and asked him his name. Being thus compelled to speak, he said that he was looking for an attendant of Pompeia named Abra, whereupon the maid, perceiving that his voice was not that of a woman, raised a cry and called the women together. These shut the doors, searched carefully all about, and found Claudius, who had taken refuge in the chamber of the girl with whom he came into the house. The affair having become noised abroad, Caesar divorced Pompeia and had an action for sacrilege brought against Claudius. 29. Now Cicero was a friend of Claudius, and in the affair of Catiline had found him a most eager co-worker and guardian of his person. But when Claudius replied to the charge against him by insisting that he had not even been in Rome at the time, but had been staying in places at the farthest removed from there, Cicero testified against him, declaring that Claudius had come to his house and consulted him on certain matters, which was true. However, it was thought that Cicero did not give his testimony for the truth's sake, but by way of defense against the charges of his own wife Terentia. For there was enmity between her and Claudius on account of his sister Claudia, 
whom Terentia thought to be desirous of marrying Cicero, and to be contriving this with the aid of a certain Tullus. Now, Tullus was a companion and an especial intimate of Cicero, and his constant visits and attentions to Claudia, who lived nearby, made Terentia suspicious. So, being a woman of harsh nature, and having sway over Cicero, he incited him to join in the attack upon Claudius, and give testimony against him. Moreover, many men of the better class bore witness against Claudius for perjury, recklessness, bribery of the multitude, and debauching of women. And Lucullus actually produced female slaves who testified that Claudius had commerce with his youngest sister when she was living with Lucullus as his wife. There was also a general belief that Claudius had intercourse with his other two sisters, of whom Tertia was the wife of Marcius Rex, and Claudia of Metellus Cellar. The latter was called Quadrantia, because one of her lovers had put copper coins into a purse and sent them to her for silver, and the smallest copper coin was called Quadrans. It was with regard to this sister in particular that Claudius was in evil repute. However, since the people at this time set themselves against those who combined and testified against him, the jurors were frightened and surrounded themselves with a guard, and most of them cast their voting tablets with the writing on them confused. But nevertheless, those who were for acquittal appeared to be in the majority, and some bribery also was said to have been used. This led Catullus to say, when he met the jurors, It was indeed a measure of safety that you asked for your guard. You were afraid that someone would take your money away from you. And Cicero, when Claudius told him that as a witness he had found no credit with the jurors, said, Nay, twenty-five of the jurors gave me credit, for so many voted against you, and thirty of them gave you no credit, for they did not vote to acquit you until they had got your money. Caesar, however, when summoned as a witness, gave no testimony against Claudius, and denied that he had condemned his wife for adultery, but said that he had put her away because Caesar's wife must be free, not only from shameful conduct, but even from shameful report. 30. But Claudius, having escaped his peril and having been chosen tribune, at once began to attack Cicero, arraying and stirring up against him all things and all men alike. He won the favor of the people by benevolent laws, got large provinces voted to each of the consuls, Macedonia to Piso and Syria to Gabinius, brought many of the poorer class into organized political activity, and kept armed slaves about his person. Now, of the three men who at that time had most power, Crassus was an out-and-out -out foe of Cicero. Pompey was dallying with both, and Caesar was about to set out for Gaul with an army. Into Caesar's favor, therefore, Cicero insinuated himself, although Caesar was not a friend, but an object of suspicion owing to the affair of Catiline, and asked to accompany him on his campaign as a legate. But no sooner had Caesar granted the request then Claudius, seeing that Cicero was thus escaping his tribunitial power, pretended to be desirous of a reconciliation, and by laying the chief blame upon Terentia, and always speaking of Cicero in friendly terms and using kindly expressions about him, as one who bore him no hatred or even ill-will, but had moderate complaints to make of him in a friendly way, he altogether took away his fear, so that he declined the office of legate under Caesar, and again applied himself to public matters. 
But at this conduct, Caesar was exasperated, and encouraged Claudius against Cicero, and completely alienated Pompey from him, while he himself testified before the people that he did not think it right or lawful that men should be put to death without a trial, as in the case of Lentulus, Cethegus, and their accomplices. For this was the denunciation made against Cicero, and to this he was summoned to make answer. And so, being in peril of prosecution, he changed his attire, and with his hair untrimmed went about supplicating the people. But Claudius met him everywhere in the streets, with a band of bold and insolent men about him, who made many unbridled jests upon Cicero's change of attire, and often pelted him with mud and stones, and so interfered with his supplications to the people. 31. However, in the first place, nearly the whole body of knights changed their attire with Cicero, and as many as twenty thousand young men escorted him with their hair untrimmed, and joined in his suppliant entreaties to the people. And besides, when the Senate had met in order to pass a vote that the people should change their dress in token of public calamity, and the consuls had opposed it, and Claudius was in arms about the Senate house, not a few of the senators ran out, rending their garments and crying aloud. But, since this sight awakened neither pity nor any mercy, but Cicero was obliged either to go into exile or to appeal to force and the sword against Claudius, he begged for aid from Pompey, who had purposely got out of the way and was staying at his country seat in the Alban Hills. First, Cicero sent Piso, his son-in-law, to entreat for him. Then he went up thither himself also. Pompey, however, on learning of his coming, could not endure to see him, for he felt a strong sense of shame towards the man who had made great struggles in his behalf, and had often adopted a political course to please him. But since he was Caesar's son-in-law, at his request he proved false to his old obligations, slipped out by another door, and so ran away from the interview. Thus betrayed by him, and left desolate, Cicero fled for refuge to the consuls. Gabinius was always severe with him, but Piso dealt with him more gently. Advising him to stand aside and yield to the impetuous assaults of Claudius, to submit to the change in the times, and to become once more a savior of his country when she was involved in seditions and misfortunes through Claudius. After getting such answer to his appeal, Cicero took counsel with his friends. Lucullus urged him to remain in the city, believing that he would prevail, but others advised him to go into exile, believing that the people would quickly long for him when they were sated with the folly and madness of Claudius. This Cicero decided to do, so he took the statue of Minerva which had long stood in his house, and which he honored exceedingly, carried it to the capital, and dedicated it there with the inscription, To Minerva, Guardian of Rome. Then, accepting an escort from his friends, about midnight he slipped out of the city, and set out on foot through Lucania, desiring to reach Sicily. 32. But as soon as it was known that he had fled, Claudius caused a vote of banishment to be passed upon him, and issued an edict that all men should refuse him fire and water, and that no man should give him shelter within five hundred miles of Italy. Now, most men paid not the slightest heed to this edict, out of respect for Cicero, 
and escorted him on his way with every mark of kindness. But at Hipponium, a city of Lucania, which is now called Vibo, Vibius, a Sicilian, who had profited much from Cicero's friendship, and particularly by being made prefect of engineers during his consulship, would not receive him in his home, but sent him word that he would assign him his country place for residence. And Caius Virgilius, the praetor of Sicily, who had been on most intimate terms with Cicero, wrote him to keep away from Sicily. Disheartened at this treatment, he set out for Brundisium, and from there tried to cross to Dyrrachium, with a fair breeze. But since he met a counterwind at sea, he came back the next day, and then set sail again. It is said, too, that after he had put in at Dyrrachium, and was about to land, there was an earthquake, accompanied by a violent convulsion of the sea. Wherefore the soothsayers conjectured that his exile would not be lasting, since these were signs of change. But although many people visited him out of goodwill, and the Greek cities vied with one another in sending him deputations, still he passed his time for the most part in dejection and great grief, looking off towards Italy like a disconsolate lover, while in his spirit he became very petty and mean by reason of his misfortune, and was more humbled than one would have expected in a man who had enjoyed so lofty a discipline as his. And yet, he often asked his friends not to call him an orator, but a philosopher, because he had chosen philosophy as an occupation, but used oratory merely as an instrument for attaining the needful ends of a political career. But public opinion has great power to wash away reason, like a dye, from the soul of men, and by force of familiar association to impress the feelings of the vulgar on those who engage in political life, unless one is right well on his guard when he engages himself in things external, and is, and is resolved to participate only in the things themselves and not in the feelings attendant upon them. 33. As for Claudius, after driving Cicero away, he burned down his villas, and burned down his house, and erected on its site a temple to liberty. The rest of his property he offered for sale, and had it proclaimed daily, but nobody would buy anything. Being therefore formidable to the patricians, and dragging along with him the people, who indulged in great boldness and effrontery, he assailed Pompey, attacking fiercely some of the arrangements made by him on his expedition. The disgrace which this brought upon Pompey led him to reproach himself for his abandonment of Cicero, and changing front, he used every effort to effect Cicero's return, and so did his friends. But since Claudius opposed himself to this, the Senate decided to ratify no measure that came up in the meantime, and to do no public business, unless Cicero should be permitted to return. During the consulship of Lentulus, however, when the disorder went on increasing, so that tribunes were wounded in the forum, and Quintus, the brother of Cicero, lay unnoticed for dead among the slain, the people began to change their minds, and Ennius Milo, one of the tribunes, first ventured to prosecute Claudius for violence, and many joined themselves to Pompey, both from the people and from the surrounding cities. With these, Pompey came forth, drove Claudius from the forum, and summoned the citizens to the vote and it is said that the people never passed any vote with such unanimity. The Senate, too, vying with the people, wrote letters of thanks to all the cities which had ministered to Cicero during his exile, 
and decreed that his house and his villas, which Claudius had destroyed, should be restored at the public cost. Thus Cicero came home in the sixteenth month after his exile, and so great was the joy of the cities and the eagerness of men to meet him, that what was said by Cicero afterwards fell short of the truth. He said, namely, that Italy had taken him on her shoulders and carried him into Rome. And there Crassus also, who was his enemy before his exile, now readily met him and was reconciled with him to gratify his son Publius, as he said, who was an ardent admirer of Cicero. 34. After allowing only a short time to pass and watching for an opportunity when Claudius was absent from the city, Cicero went up with a great company to the capital, and there tore away and destroyed the tablets of the tribunes in which were the records of their administration. When Claudius brought charges against him for this, and Cicero argued that it was illegal for Claudius to pass from the ranks of the patricians into the tribunate, and that therefore none of his acts was valid, Cato was indignant and spoke against Cicero. Not that he approved of Claudius, nay, he was actually displeased at his political course, but he set forth that it was a strange and violent measure for the Senate to vote the abrogation of so many acts and decrees, among which were those for his own administration in Cyprus and Byzantium. This led to an antagonism between him and Cicero, which came to no open manifestation, but made their friendly treatment of one another less marked. 35. After this, Claudius was killed by Milo, and Milo, being prosecuted for murder, engaged Cicero as his advocate. But the Senate was afraid that at the trial of Milo, who was a man of repute and high spirit, there might be a disturbance in the city, and therefore entrusted the superintendence of this and the other trials to Pompey, who was to furnish security for the city in the courts of justice. So Pompey, while it was still night, posted his soldiers on the heights so as to command the forum, and Milo, fearing that Cicero might be disturbed at the unusual sight and conduct his case less successfully, persuaded him to be brought in a litter to the forum and to wait there quietly until the jurors assembled and the courtroom was filled. Now Cicero, as it would seem, was not only without courage under arms, but also felt fear when he began to speak, and in many trials he hardly ceased quivering and trembling after his eloquence had become high and sustained. When he was to plead for Licinius Murina in a case brought against him by Cato, and was ambitious to surpass Hortensius, who had made a successful plea, he took no rest at all during the night before, so that his lack of sleep and his great anxiety did him harm, and he was thought inferior to himself in his plea. And so, at this time, when he came out of his litter to plead Milo's cause and saw Pompey stationed on the heights as in a camp, and arms flashing all around the forum, he was confounded and could scarcely begin his speech, for his body quivered and his voice faltered. Whereas Milo showed the good courage of a brave man at the trial, and had not deigned to let his hair go untrimmed, or to change his attire to a dark one. And this seems most of all to have contributed to his condemnation. However, Cicero's behavior led men to think him devoted to his friends, rather than cowardly. 36. He became also one of the priests whom the Romans call augurs, in place of the younger Crassus, 
who had died among the Parthians. Then the lot gave him Cilicia as his province, with an army of twelve thousand men-at-arms and twenty-six hundred horsemen, and he set sail, with instructions to keep Cappadocia friendly and obedient to King Ariobarzanes. This he accomplished and arranged satisfactorily without war, and seeing that the Cilicians, in view of the Parthian disaster to the Romans and the uprising in Syria, were in an agitated state, he pacified them by his mild government. Gifts he would not receive, not even when the kings offered them, and he relieved the provincials from the expense of entertainments, but he himself daily received men of pleasing accomplishments at banquets, which were not expensive, although generous. His house, too, had no doorkeeper, nor did anyone ever see him lying abed, but early in the morning he would stand or walk in front of his chamber and receive those who came to pay him their respects. It is said, moreover, that he never ordered any man to be chastised with rods or to have his raiment torn from him, and that he never inflicted angry abuse or contumelious punishments. He discovered that much of the public property had been embezzled, and by restoring it he made the cities well-to-do, and men who made restitution he maintained in their civil rights without further penalties. He engaged in war, too, and routed the robbers who made their homes on Mount Amenus, and for this he was actually saluted by his soldiers as imperator. When Silius the orator asked Cicero to send him panthers from Cilicia for a certain spectacle... When Silius the orator asked Cicero to send him panthers from Cilicia for a certain spectacle at Rome, Cicero, pluming himself upon his exploits, wrote to him that there were no panthers in Cilicia, for they had fled to Caria in indignation, because they alone were warred upon, while everything else enjoyed peace. On his voyage back from his province, he first touched at Rhodes, and then gladly spent some time at Athens, in fond remembrance of his old pursuits in that place. Then, after associating with men who were foremost for their learning, and after greeting his old-time friends and intimates, and after receiving from Greece the tokens of admiration that were his due, he returned to Rome, where violent inflammation, as it were, was already forcing matters on towards the civil war. 37. Accordingly, when the senators were voting him a triumph, he said he would more gladly follow in Caesar's triumphal procession if matters could be settled, and privately he gave much advice to Caesar, by letter, and much to Pompey, in person, by way of personal entreaty, trying to mollify and pacify each of them. But when things were past healing, and Caesar was advancing upon the city, and Pompey did not stay there, but abandoned the city in the company of many good men, Cicero did not take part in this flight, and was thought to be attaching himself to Caesar. And it is clear that his judgment drew him strongly in both directions, and that he was in distress. For he writes in his letters that he knew not which way he ought to turn, since Pompey had honorable and good grounds for going to war while Caesar managed matters better and had more ability to save himself and his friends. He therefore knew from whom he should flee, but not to whom he should flee. And when Trebatius, one of the companions of Caesar, wrote him a letter stating that Caesar thought he ought above all things to range himself on his side and share his hopes, but that if he declined to do this by reason of his age, 
he ought to go to Greece and take up a quiet life there out of the way of both, Cicero was amazed that Caesar himself did not write, and replied in a passion that he would do nothing unworthy of his political career. Such, then, is the purport of his letters. End of section 6